Dave Chapman's Stars You Should Know for the summer on episode 348 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars. Welcome back to the show, Dave. But before I forget, you wanted to do a plug for your book. So go go for it. I was Thank excited you. to hear about a book. Yeah. 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 You're a good book guy. Um, well, thanks very much for having me back. I guess uh, the, what this is a, the third in a series uh, and it, they've been really a lot of fun. Or is this, is this maybe the fourth? This is the fourth in a series. This is the so, fourth. So yeah. Yeah. And they have been fun. That wasn't a hesitation they, because they weren't no, fun. No, no, they have been very fun. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we would have carried on if they hadn't been. So <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. I do want to, uh, make a little bit of a plug because uh uh you know some people know me and and my history uh but other viewers listeners may not know that much about what i've been up to uh but uh, uh last fall uh after about 10 years of work and uh, uh study um i published a book which is called with it with a friend uh Mi'kmaq moons the seasons in Mi'kma'ki. And I did that with a First Nations uh, Indigenous uh, lady uh, named Kathy LeBlanc. And we do this two-eyed seeing approach to uh, the the moon names and what they mean and their connection with nature. And uh, it's, it's, it's written uh, at a kind of a senior, like a grade six level in school. That's the level of writing. But we're saying that it's an all ages book because uh, there's a lot of stuff here that adults wouldn't know already. So, you know, an adult could learn from this, even indigenous people who don't know that have this knowledge, this knowledge is kind of vanishing knowledge. And, and also it's got amazing. Um, it's got amazing uh, art by a, a, an indigenous artist, a Mi'kmaq artist named Loretta Gould. And the core of the book is 12 stories, one for each principal moon. And on the left-hand side, there's a beautiful uh, um, beautiful illustration. On the right-hand side, there's a story. We call them Holly and Auntie stories because it's a conversation between Auntie, who is in fact Kathy, and Holly, who is a real-life person, her niece. And so we, we, we transmit the knowledge by <clears throat> telling those stories. So if anyone's interested in buying that book... Um, you can find it on Amazon or Indigo. Uh, again, it's called Mi'kmaq Moons, and that's spelled M-I-apostrophe-K-M-A-W, Mi'kmaq. And also, uh, you could buy it there. Uh, but uh, we, if you want to support our project, you could uh, email or you could go to our link tree, uh, our, our Mi'kmaq Moons link tree, and uh, that's going to be uh, posted on the the notes um, for the show, okay? And you can find out everything about Mi'kmaq Moons project and how to order a book from us, which is signed. So I'm I'm offering a signed copy. Okay. Yeah, I've I have one of the signed copies. It's yeah, it's well well worth it. Thank you for that. Thank I thank you. I bought mine. I'm just saying that off the top. I bought my copy from Dave Shane. I think you bought yours from Amazon. Yeah, yeah, I did. I should have just gone direct to source. I now regret well, my you decision, know, we... but. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're pretty green at the book uh, selling business, and uh, you know I was all like support your local bookstores and and that, and then I decided that maybe Amazon wasn't my local bookstore uh, or even chapters. So uh, and and then when our when our uh, royalties started dribbling in, and my co-author complained about <laughs> how low the royalties were, I said, well, you know, if you want to make if you want to make money on this book, which is not really why we wrote it, but. I said, if you want to make money, you have to sell them, okay? Because if you sell them, you're a vendor, and you get the the forty, you know, you get the forty percent discount, so you, everything else goes in your pocket. So, so we're getting a bit more aggressive about marketing them for ourselves. <laughs> the bookstores have had their chance. Yeah, and it's a it's a beautifully illustrated book. You mentioned Loretta Gould's uh, paintings in there. Uh, some people, I, I was reading some of the reviews of it. Some people were buying the book for the illustrations. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they're beautiful. No. Yeah, she's uh, pretty well known around these parts. Like oh, she, yeah. did a, she did a big installation out at the Halifax airport. Yeah. So when you go to uh, 
if you're there in the daytime, at least like there's like glass panels with her yep. art. You know, it's it's amazing. Okay, yeah, I, was, I was there, took a look at it. It's very cool, and yeah, people should get in touch with uh, Dave via his uh, Migma Moons linked. Uh, what's it called? Linktree. Linktree. Yeah. Cool. All right, ready to move on to the show? Yes. You've been a regular guest, a mentor of mine, longtime amateur astronomer, retired acoustical scientist, former RASC Observer's Handbook editor, and I rely on you to review my work frequently. So thanks for that, Dave. And it's always fun to have you on to do the latest installment of yeah. the stars you should know. Well, thanks for that. Um, I've learned a lot from you uh, in turn. And um, thanks for the little dig that I owe you a, a review of the RASC Observer's calendar which you sent me last night so <laughs> a nice little reminder there <laughs> little we're, we're, we got a little back and forth going here dave's plugging his book and i'm plugging dave yeah. to do some work for me <laughs> well you know we have a you know we have a very uh collaborative enterprise yes. going on here uh, the community here especially in canada i would say uh very collaborative uh uh supportive network of, of yeah. amateur astronomers and uh whether or not we're members of clubs or whatnot it's just uh we're all kind of in it together and we help yeah. each other out so, and that's that's great yeah for sure so where do you want to begin with the uh, stars you should know for summer dave we're excited well, to get into this one yeah um so a couple of a couple of kind of uh housekeeping things before we go um I'm focusing very much on the classic Greek and Roman Greek and Roman names that that we uh, are aware of through the conventional astronomy, and I, I'm as you know, I'm fully aware of all of the other uh, cultures and their interpretation of the sky. But you know, you can't do everything in in one show. So I'm sticking to the kind of the the sort of the conventional Greek Roman names and constellations. Uh, and the reason for that is that th this is what's used in a lot of the go-to telescopes that people have. Um, another thing I want to mention, oh, there will be some occasional reference to indigenous or other cultures, but uh, there's a very rich store of knowledge there that, that people could dig into. And one way you could uh, access that, in fact, is that RASC has a uh, World Asterisms project, which is huge. And if you want to get into that, I mean, they've got thousands of names of uh, asterisms and alternative names for constellations and even constellations that, you know, don't exist in, the in you know, according to the IAU. So that's one way you could access a lot of that. The other thing I wanted to mention is we do talk about uh, spectral classes of stars in this uh, podcast because of the different colors. And I just wanted to review those classes uh, we don't have time to get into it, but um, stars come in uh, a variety of sizes, and uh, based on their size, they 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 fuse energy, fuse hydrogen at different temperatures, and they have different colors. So, so there's a, a sequence of of letters that are used to classify stars from the the very red sorry, from the very blue and white stars through yellow and um, orange and into the red. And I'm just going to briefly go through those. Um, so here are the classes. O, B, A, F, G, K, M. So we'll be looking at those. So the, you know, the O and B are sort of at the white end and the K and M are at sort of the red end. So just keep that in mind as... Lots of places you can go to learn about that um, that the spectral classes of stars. In in fact, we did an episode recently with uh, Daniel Andreasen, who's an astrophysicist. Yes, and he talked about stars, and that was on episode number three hundred and thirty six, which Great. we released on June twenty second. So, if people want to find out more about that topic, they can go there. I, I don't know if I've listened to that one yet. Maybe I should maybe I should go listen to it right after this. Yeah, well, maybe actually, I should have done it before. Well, <laughs> well, to be honest, I I believe if if I'm not misremembering, uh, you uh, in part inspired Daniel to help create those episodes for us because well, I, one, 
he he saw that you were collaborating with us and he is also a very collaborative individual and uh, and he did a very similar thing where he helped curate a series of shows on more of the astrophysics which is his expertise well you know i didn't know that but it uh, it uh, does my heart glad to hear that i'm uh, i'm i'm very touched that somebody would uh uh, be so inclined, but you know, I think I've always tried to set it, be a trendsetter. So there you go. <laughs> so with, the, with, the, with, let's get on to the stars. Okay. So the stars you should know in summer. Now the, the spring stars, uh, you know, I, I sort of said in spring that these might not be as uh, well known uh, to people for various reasons, but uh, I think most people, most the average person will be looking at the stars in the summertime when they're camping or at the cottage. So these stars that we're going to talk about, they're going to be a lot more familiar, I think, to, to most people. But, but you know, you think you know them, but there's things you don't know about them that you need to know. So, and of the 12 that we're going to talk about, there there's like nine, I would say, bright stars, which I'm saying between magnitude zero and six. So in a dark sky, you'd have a chance of seeing them with the unaided eye. And then there's three dimmer stars uh, that would be um, uh, of interest because of some peculiarities and, and are worth tracking down. So the nine bright stars, uh, eight of them are used for celestial navigation. And that's where I start every episode. I always go to the navigation stars because obviously – They've been important for many centuries in the astronomy world, and they've got they've all got names. That's the other thing. So that's always where I start, and then I kind of build on that. And um, uh, that's eight out of fifty-eight in all. And most of these are um, sky watcher sin scan or celestial alignment stars. If you have that kind of software where it says, you know, train your telescope on, you know, Vega or what have you. Uh, if you're going to use that kind of software, it's really helpful to know the names of the bright stars because I, I I had to learn some myself because my sin scan would say uh, go to Enif and I go where the hell where the hell is that you know so I, that's how I got started. So so what we're going to do is we're going to start off like it's summer, so of course the the big attraction in summer is are the stars and constellations of the summer triangle so uh, i'm going to start with lyra which is the lyre or harp and uh there's some very interesting uh star facts about this constellation so it, it's it's the lyre or harp so it's uh it it's um i'm trying to think of the greek god that uh created this but it's the lyre that was gifted to orpheus in the greek legend of orpheus and uh so we see it as a harp and um but interestingly enough the 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 brightest star in lyra is called vega and that's alpha lyra so that's i don't know it's one of the brightest stars in the entire sky but Vega, actually, the name Vega is a de derives from the Arabic, uh, re relating to a swooping vulture or eagle. So this caught my eye because, um, so we look at it as a harp, but in some old constellation books, you will see the harp, and you might see a bird holding the harp in its talons. So. And in one version of the story, the 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 vulture or eagle, the, nobody seems to know which one it is. Uh, it was the was the delivery. It was like the um, it was like the 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 FedEx of the gods was delivering this harp to Orpheus from from uh, the gods, and so some old uh, some old um, star charts show this eagle uh, in 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 the uh, in the drawings. So uh, Alpha Lyra Vega is it's it's like the classic magnitude zero variable star. It's slightly variable, but it is like the star which defines the zero of the magnitude scale. Okay, 
So it's like the quintessential magnitude zero star. Uh, and it's a blue white uh, A zero main sequence star. So it's, 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 it's not a giant or anything or a dwarf or it's just a sort of a regular old star. And it is a classic navigation star used both by Skywatcher and Celestron. And like for where I live in, in Nova Scotia and m most mid, you know, mid latitude, it's kind of like this when you look up in the when you look up in the sky when it gets dark at night in the summer, that's the star you see. It's like almost dead overhead, Vega, one of the first ones that comes out. Maybe Arcturus might be a little bit sooner. Uh, and it has a bit of a history. So it was the first star that someone photographed. Actually, the was a they used a daguerreotype, you know, before before of photography. Uh, it was the first star to have its spectrum analyzed, and it was amongst uh, the very first stars whose distance was measured by parallax. And what that means is you take pictures of the star against the background stars at two different dates, and from from the geometry, the the perspective, you it looks like like Vega would move uh, a little bit. Um, relative to the background star. So by measuring that angle and knowing the size of the Earth's orbit, you could actually estimate the distance. And at, at the beginning, when people were measuring distances, this is they used these parallax methods to uh, determine star distances. So it was one of the first ones that was uh, used to do that. Culturally speaking, it is home to the fictional alien civilization in the book and movie Contact. So uh, that was Carl Sagan uh, story, I believe. It was him. Where's his wife? No, it was it Carl Sagan wrote the book. It was Contact. Yeah, Contact. Yeah, I think his wife was involved. Andrew, yeah. But then, of course, there was that famous, I guess, nineteen nineties movie uh, Contact. Yeah, with Jodie Foster. Yeah, with Jodie Foster. That was a big movie for her, and uh, I think I remember it was being a pretty cool movie. You yeah, know. I like it would, that movie. You know, the story would be a good one because I mean Carl Sagan was a very known planetary scientist. And you know, I'm I'm sure all of the except for the kind of the fantasy parts or the made-up parts, it, it would all it would have very good science, you know, to back it up. It's probably worth going back and reading that. So Vega is the is the brightest star in, in Lyra, and there's plenty of other interesting ones, but the other one I want to talk about is Epsilon Lyra, which doesn't have a true name, but people call it the double double, and it's because of uh, and it's because of the following: it it is basically a pair of magnitude uh, four or five stars, but each of and they're fairly wide. You can see those almost with your naked eye, uh, the separation. But certainly in binoculars, you can see epsilon Lyra, the double. But in a in a good telescope, and I don't think it has to be very good. But I mean, it doesn't have to be very big. But it has to be. It has to have good optics. In a good telescope, you will you can split each of those components, and they're themselves uh, double stars, and they're very fine. Like they're two seconds of arc, two and a, a half seconds of arc apart. So it's really a good test of your optics and the sky conditions. But, uh, you know, I'm always, when I'm out in the summer, I always have a look at Epsilon Lyra just to see what it looks like, because it's fun to see. It's it's a very, uh, very interesting, uh, um, uh, very interesting structure. I think there may actually be more stars in the system than that. But, and and all of those stars are, quite a main sequence stars and i have a little a funny thing to say now when when my friend quinn smith used to do sky tours here he, he lives in england now and he would talk about lyra and he would talk about the double double and he would mention that there's a planetary nebula uh is it m57 57 and it's called the ring nebula and he said you know it looks like a little when you look at it at a telescope it looks like a little donut so he came up with this idea. He said, you know what, Dave? He said, we should go to Tim Horton's company. Like Tim Horton's is a big coffee chain in Canada and parts uh, parts abroad as well. He said, we should go to Tim Horton's and offer to change the name of Lyra to Tim Horton's because they have a double-double and they have donuts. 
And double double that's that's how you would order a coffee with double milk and double double sugar you'd say i'd like a double double so he, he said we should go to them like say for a million bucks we'll change the name of uh we, we won't say lyra anymore we'll just say tim hortons anyway <laughs> we never followed up on that <laughs> and maybe that's a good thing <laughs> maybe that's <yeah. laughs> okay can you imagine can you imagine? It's like it's like another version of the star, you know, like name your star after, you know, name a star after your wife or something. Buy her a star. Buy buy a constellation. Okay, the next one we're gonna move to is very close to Lyra, Cygnus the Swan, another very prominent constellation. And in fact, it has a second name. Uh a lot of people refer to it as the Northern Cross because it has it has, I guess, five fairly bright stars in in the classic shape of a Christian cross. And there is a constellation, the Crux, uh, which is a, a cross-shaped constellation in the southern sky. But this is like a, an echo of that in the northern sky, although it's quite quite a bit bigger. And it's like the Milky Way runs right through Cygnus. So it's a very uh, rich part of the sky just to... To, to look at one of the things I like to do when I go camping in Kejimkujik, the the picture behind me is taken from a favorite spot in Kejimkujik, um Dark Sky Preserve, where the lovely beach. And uh, I'll get out there on a clear night, on, and I just kind of recline and and just uh, take my binoculars, and I just cruise through the Milky Way. I don't I don't have an observing list. I just look for things and uh, just enjoy the dark skies and all of the things you can see in the Milky Way through through Cygnus. So the brightest star in Cygnus is uh, Deneb, Alpha Cygni, and it's the tail of the swan. And uh, Deneb is a, a name you see quite a bit in star names. And uh, the homework assignment is is to go and look and see how many how many named stars in the sky have Deneb in the name, because there's, there's a, f- a fair number of them. Uh, because Deneb means tail, and there's m- many constellations are animals or birds, and uh, and they have a lot of them have tails. So, so it's a magnitude one variable double star. Uh, so it's a little dimmer than than uh, than Vega, and it's uh, a blue A two supergiant star. So it's a very big star. It's also a classic navigation star with Skywatcher and Celestron. And for those who do like touring the sky with binoculars, the dark sky, uh, in a typical binocular, uh, if you can find uh, uh, Deneb, then the North America nebula is within a binocular field of uh, Deneb. Now, to my aging eyes, I have a hard time seeing the North America nebula visually. It's a very popular target with astrophotographers. And when and these days, when people photograph it, it looks amazingly complex and remarkable. Uh, uh, and those pictures are wonderful. I love them. But that's not what you see when <laughs> when you uh, look at it. And 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 you ha- you have to make sure you've got a good amount of aperture, and you have to have a dark sky, and you've got to have your eyes dark adapted. But you know you can make out that North American nebula on a good night with if you take care of your eyes and and not uh, blind them with light. Um, at the other end of um, Cygnus is a star called Albirio. Uh, which is Beta Cygni, and uh, the, the name is a bit of a corruption, but it represents the beak of the swan, Albirio. So it's the other end of the swan, and it's a magnitude three star. Now, just to show you how bad the light pollution is here in Halifax, uh, I have a hard time actually picking out Albirio in my backyard here in Dartmouth. It, it It's gotten worse over the years, but when you can't see a magnitude three star, obviously, you know, you're in bad shape. So, so that's why it's important to get out to a nice dark site at your, your cottage or a, a park or somewhere to, to see these stars, just to, to see them in their magnificence. The interesting thing about Albirio, it, it's a colored double star and it's a pair uh, one is brighter than the other, but they're separated by 35 seconds of arc. So a decent pair of binoculars held 
stably would split those two uh, and and you should be able to pick out the color difference because uh, uh, people describe them in different ways, but they're gold and blue or yellow, blue. Most of people get the blue. The, the other color people, everybody sees things differently. You ask them what the colors are and they'll tell you different things. But certainly in a telescope, uh, it's really worth even a small telescope on Alberio will show you those colors. They're, they're bright, relatively bright stars, and the color difference is, is quite marked. So one of them is an orange K3 giant. So that would be the, the, the goldish or yellowish star. And the other one, the, the blue one, is a blue-white B8 uh, main sequence star. Um. I don't know what the latest science is on this. It's not clear whether they're actually physically associated or whether they just happen to be in the same direction of the sky. Uh, uh, if they're physically associated, they have a very long period. I don't think the jury is in on that one. Uh, it It is used in Skywatcher as an alignment star, not Celestron. And uh, like I say, uh, if you if you hold your binoculars steady, you, you should be able to pick that out. It's one of the crowd-pleasing um, things In uh, if you're doing a, a sky tour with a telescope in the summer. People uh, really love the seeing Alberio. And also, it's interesting because you, you, you can sort of get a sense of how well, how good people's vision is. Uh, because a lot everybody seems to react to that pair of stars differently. Uh, and then you realize that some people look in telescopes and they don't even know what they're looking at. It's not in focus or, you know, you have to coach people sometimes to, you know, get the stars in focus and and, and estimate the color and that. Uh, nearby Alberio, it's not in Cygnus, but it's it's a, it's an, a, a good gatepost, a, a signpost. Nearby uh, Alberio is the, um, the coat hanger uh, star cluster. And I can't remember offhand which way it is, but if you look on a star chart, uh, it's uh, the coat hanger a star cluster. It's col colander. Come on, help me out, Chris. Three ninety nine. Three ninety nine colander. And uh, uh, so, if you're looking for the coat hanger, uh, let me think now. I used to have a way of doing this. I think I would go between Alberio and Altair, or something like that, or maybe it's. Uh, if you go towards Altair um, from Alberio with binoculars, you'd find it. And, and it's very, it'll, it'll pop out. It, it definitely looks like a coat hanger. And you can actually see that with your naked eye if you know where to look. And if it's, again, a dark sky, you can see that little cluster of stars. The last yeah, star, in, yeah. I'm just, just looking at it here now. Yeah, it's, it's about halfway between Altair Actually, it's just not quite halfway between Altair and Vega. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and, that's that's a that's, good way to say it. That's how it was described by Al Sufi, who was okay. really the first person who uh, who noticed it, and that's why it has the other name. Perhaps more appropriately is Sufi's cluster. How we have Ptolemy's okay. cluster. That one is uh, Sufi's cluster, and strangely enough, and I did write a paper on this and publish it, is that that is a target. Or an object that was plotted on Uranometria, uh, sixteen oh four. Okay, yeah, interesting. Well, that's good. Um, yes, you're right. I was thinking between Vega and Altair, about about halfway. And with binoculars, you can be fuzzy about that. But I, I guess my point was that if you're going to go look at Alberio, you might as well just hop over and look at the coat hanger while you're there, you know, because it's not far. So the last star in Cygnus. Uh, is doesn't have a, a proper name. It's called 61 Cygni, but it's also known as the flying star, uh, which I'll explain in a minute. It's magnitude five. It's a multiple star system. Uh, it's basically fundamentally a, a pair of orange K5 and K7 dwarf stars, easily split in binoculars. They're, so they're like magnitude five, six. And it's on the chart. It's in the in the wing of... of uh, Cygnus. Um, where was I going with that? Okay, so uh, it was 
I don't know if it was the first star that was discovered to have large proper motion, but back in 1792, Piazzi discovered large proper motion, which means that if you plot the position of the star relative to the background sky, it's kind of like motoring along. And unlike the parallax thing where you, you see the star move back and forth over a year, this, this one just kept on moving. And P Piazzi uh, discovered that. And and then after that, Bessel, the famous Bessel, he he actually measured the distance by by parallax because the fact that it had large proper motion through the sky uh, implied that it was nearby. So it's like eleven eleven point four light years away, and it's the fifteenth nearest star. Uh, so that's a cool one to look for in binoculars because of this history. Uh, I also believe it's one of the objects in the Explorer of the Universe, as is Alberio, the uh, RESE beginner um, observing uh, um, certificate. Um, the possibility that it would have a planet uh, came out in a uh, 1953. Well, it was in, it inspired the 1953 science fiction story, Mission to Gravity by Hal Clement. I don't know if you've ever read that story. I haven't. But uh, I remember when I was a kid, my friend John Conville, he was always talking about, you know, laser beams from Cygni 61 or radio waves. He was always joking around about. So th it was in it was in the pop culture, you know, uh, consciousness that there, you know, maybe there might be a civilization on 61 Cygni. Okay, so we're going to move on to the... Uh, Aquila, the eagle, which is uh, farther south than um, uh, both uh, Cygnus and Vega, and in fact, I I believe it actually lies on the in the uh, celestial equator, and that's the eagle. the um, The main star there is called Altair, um, Alpha Aquilae, and Altair is a uh, derives from the Arabic uh, word for flying eagle. And it's all, and also a magnitude one star. It is a yellow-white A7 dwarf. And again, Skywatcher and Celestron both use that uh, for alignment. There's not much more to say about it, but then here's another pop culture reference. I guess that's, we're getting a lot of those this time. So the, the, Forbidden Planet, 1956. That film Ooh, was set on fictitious. That was set on fictitious planet Altair Four, and wasn't isn't Forbidden Planet the one that's based on a The Tempest by Shakespeare? I think so. Yeah. So that's there. You go. There you go. So um, right. Um, so there's another pop culture reference if you're interested in. Uh, you know, following up these classic science fiction stories. So I don't think Forbidden Planet was ever a book. I think they basically swiped the plot line from the the Tempest and just created a movie out of it. And it's a it's a pretty cool movie, as I recall. It's got you know, it's got a robot in it, and it's got a, a damsel, and uh, you know, got some heroes, and you know, that kind of thing. Now I have to talk about another asterism here. I've it, it it's the elephant in the room. So Deneb, Altair, and Vega create something called the Summer Triangle. It's a very prominent, large asterism in the sky, uh, and, and it comprises the, the, the first few stars which come out at night. So again, at star parties and that, we, we point that out, and we have fun getting people to look for those stars. Here in Nova Scotia, uh, in in these parts, when uh, this 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 uh, asterism has acquired a second name from the letters of the stars D A V E, and Vega gets two letters because it's got the double double, right? So we tell people that it's the it's the constellation Dave, okay? <laughs> and and uh, we always. Uh, tell people this and in fact there are people out there young people who apparently know it as dave and don't know it as the summer triangle so 
we're corrupting we're corrupting <laughs> astronomy <laughs> <laughs> you've changed oh. the night sky for me forever dave it's uh i don't know awesome. i i, sh- I, like I should i should send that one to uh charles ennis of the asterism project and see if he wants to include it yeah i i think i can i can hear alistair ling typing an email now <laughs> uh How many have we done? Like one. I feel like I'm. I might be short a page here. Um, I feel. I feel embarrassed. Uh, I. I feel like there's a page missing from my show notes here. Okay. Oh no! Oops. Here you go. It's just stuck. It just came out of the That's printer. Okay. So, okay, that That's was a close right. one. That was a close one. We would have had to take a little edit break there. That's all right. Okay, we're going to move down below Altera and 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 along the Milky Way. Uh, down to uh, way, way down to Scorpius, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, quite low in the southern sky hereabouts. And, and I guess in your parts of the world, it, it's even a little bit harder to pick out. Um, so the, the the main star there is Antares, which is Alpha, Alpha, Scorp- Alpha Scorpii. And the name of Antares trans- it translates from the Greek, the rival of Mars, because Mars is Roman. In Greek, the, the god of war was Ares, A-R-E-S, and Antares is the rival of Mars. And so once in a while, when Mars is in the right place in the, along the ecliptic, you can actually see Mars and Antares together. This happened a few years ago, and I was it was very interesting to point that out to people, that there's Mars and there's Antares, the rival of Mars, in the same star field. That's not going to happen for a while now. Uh, it is also known as Core Scorpionis, the heart of the Scorpion. Although uh, I don't think that's that common. It is a magnitude one variable double star. It's a red M one point five supergiant. It's it's one of the reddest stars uh, around. It's it's pretty obviously red to the eye. And um, I just learned this uh, recently, but the. On either side of Antares, there's some nearby bright stars, and they're um, Sigma and Tau uh, Scorpii, but they both have the same proper name, Alniad, which means the arteries, okay? So I just learned that by my recent research. So there's two stars that have the same name because they're they're sort of like on both sides, and they're both arteries. and this is another thing I discovered just the uh, last month, in fact. There's a very nice binocular field uh, with globular cluster uh, M4. Uh, that I knew, near Antares. But, and I discovered this by using those really super wide-angle constellation binoculars I got. Mm-hmm. I was looking at, at Scorp- Scorpius. And I said to my observing buddy, who is uh, Judy Black, I said, "Take a look at uh, Scorpius there, like around Antares, and do you like do you see like there's this there's this really rich star field? Like forget Antares and everything else, but there's this really rich star field, just like like a, a huge cluster of stars. And if you use conventional binoculars, you might miss it, but with those wide angle constellation binoculars." And I looked it up, and it's got a name. It's uh, Colander three zero two. It's a very wide open cluster. Are you aware of that? Um, um, yep. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a that's a large one. I, it might even be in my wide field wonders list. It, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. But you know, there's an example. Like I've been observing now. I mean, I started out. I would say more than sixty years ago is when I became an amateur astronomer, and like it's just an example of how. You go out and look at things you've looked at hundreds of times before, and then you find something new, you know, by just seeing it on a different night or using a different optic or, you know, you just, you you, you notice things and you say, well, that's, uh, that's kind of interesting. And then you sort of ask, well, is it just me or is it a thing? And in this case, I found out that, you know, if you go into the, if you go into the, uh, into the, um, Star Atlas is, you know, they've got this big circle, you know, colander 302. But you need you need to have that wide field to appreciate it. And, uh, of course, Antares is, a, again, a classic navigation star. Skywatcher and Celestron both use it. 
The other star I want to talk about in Scorpius is Shaula, which is Lambda Scorpii, and it's called the Stinger. Now, that's quite a bit farther down south. And to see Shaula, you, you have to have, you can't be too far north, and you have to catch it at the right month and time in the sky so that it's culminating. Here, it's only a few degrees above the horizon when I go to Kejim Kujik. Uh, from home in the city, I could never find it because there's too many trees and stuff. But if if you if you have a nice uh, lake, you know, open to the south, uh, you can see that very well. It's a magnitude variable multiple star. It's a blue white B one point five subgiant. Um, and so actually, the stinger it's called the stinger, but actually the Shaula and the star that's right next to it, uh, quite close to it, it it's called Lisa which is Upsilon Scorpio, those two stars make up the stinger, okay? So the stinger is those two stars together, not just not just Shaula, but the two. And, and it, you know, Scorpius is one of those things that it really looks like the thing that it is, the scorpion. You know, like you, you can, you see that tail curling around and then it's got the stinger on the end. And yeah, I, I really love that constellation. Once, once you're below about 40, seven degrees north latitude unfortunately yeah we don't quite we don't yeah. see that that stinger here but we do get now you called it shaula shaula am i saying that wrong well i don't know i've always called it shola but i'm just i'm more of a phonetic pronouncer myself i i, I like likely if, i'm saying it if wrong. that's if if that's the case and i've been saying it wrong all these years but i'll have to we'll have to check the observer's handbook which has yeah. a page of pronunciations yeah we do have we do have pronunciation experts who do listen so i'm curious to hear if they can write in but i've even heard of shola or shala and uh Lesseth being called the cat's eyes and as they oh, peer okay. as they peer over the horizon particularly from here i can see them from here yeah, uh, but that that is pretty much about the most southerly stars that uh, that I can see from yeah, that's interesting from Saskatchewan because that's fairly easy here from Nova Scotia. Eh? Oh yeah, yeah. So it's it's a common summer uh, a summer view for for me is to look for those. Yeah. Uh, what's more, can I say about them nearby? Nearby, uh, maybe a, maybe a couple of binoculars a width to the east. Is a beautiful cluster, uh, Ptolemy's cluster M7. You mentioned Ptolemy's cluster already. Uh, it's it's uh, it's like one binocular field to the northeast of Shaula. So once you've got Shaula, if you can see it at all, then you move up and you can get Ptolemy's cluster. And that again, in a dark sky, uh, free of haze, it's a beautiful, like, even as a naked eye object. I, I remember going down a portage in Kenchimkujik and coming out of the trees and then the sky opened up and I saw Ptolemy's cluster framed in like a V uh, caused by the tree line. There was this V of sky and in the middle of it was Ptolemy's cluster. And I had just come out from a very dark portage in the middle of the night and it was just glowing. It was the best view of, of uh, Ptolemy's cluster I've ever had. And it was just coming out of that dark and then it was kind of framed by this V and there was nothing else in the sky to the left and right. And it was like, bing, you know, it's just one of those ma magic moments. So next to uh, Scorpius, farther east, is Sagittarius, the archer. Now, we don't, I mean, uh, if you can't, if you have a hard time seeing Shaula, then so, I think you probably have a hard time seeing a lot of the stars in, in uh, Sagittarius. And in fact, even here, the Sagittarius is a very large constellation north-south, and we don't see a lot of the southern stars. So around here, and I think most of, uh, in, in most of North America, Canada, what we see, we don't see the, the archer. We don't see the centaur, which is the archer. We see a, a thing we call the teapot. It's an asterism. And once you see the teapot, you can't unsee it. So like when I see... Sagittarius, I think teapot, because it has a very distinct uh, shape. You know, it's got a it's got a handle and a and a beak, and uh, and it's got a top. And then the other thing that's kind of cool is if you can see the Milky Way, the Milky Way looks like a line of steam coming out of the teapot, right? Because mm -hmm. it it seems to sort of emanate from from Sagittarius there. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, of course, that's uh, more or less the direction of the center of our galaxy. So again, it's a very rich part of the sky. Uh, the the individual stars uh, aren't as well known, but the uh, Nunki, as a Sigma Sagittarii, is uh, uh, it's one of the uh, alignment stars and navigation stars. So it's Sigma Sagittarii. Not not at all the brightest star, which is another case of where somehow the brightest, or it might be the brightest star, but it's not called Alpha. So there you go. This idea that the Alpha means the brightest star, it's it just doesn't hold up uh, if you go across all the constellations. It's a magnitude 2 double star, and it's a blue B3 main sequence star. So it's kind of like the top of the handle of the teapot on the chart. Um, and it's the brightest star in that part of the constellation. And once you find it, again, if you're looking, uh, if you're looking for the globular cluster uh, Messier 22, if you go northwest from Nunki, you'll find M22. And I know people who say that they think M22 globular cluster is the finest one that we can see from here. Like a lot of people go to M13 because it's high in the sky. But if you can pick up M22, uh, a lot of people prefer that to look at. It's it's a very large and bright uh, cluster. Now, and you can see it naked eye as well. Uh, yes. Oh, I guess you can. Yeah. Although I don't have any personal recollection of that. I'm going to have to check that out next time. Not this time. I'm going to Kajim Kujik tomorrow, but it's going to be cloudy the whole time. But we're still going. So. Anyway, the, uh, another star in the bottom of the handle of the teapot is Caus Australis. And that's Epsilon Sagittarius, Sagittarii, I should say. And it's so, uh, according to uh, the um, you know Ptolemy, it's it's the southern tip of the archer's bow. So there's two other stars. There's Caus Media. Delta Sagittarii and Caos Borealis, uh, Lambda um, Sagittarii. So those three stars named Caos. So there's North, Middle, and South. They're they're the bow of the, of the uh, of the Archer. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, and it and Caos I just mentioned is the base of the teapot spout. It's a little sorry I I misspoke earlier. Uh, the map I wrote is uh, not very accurate. It's not at the bottom of the handle. It's the bottom of the spout is Caus Australis. Now it makes more sense that that's the southern part of the bow, and then the one above it is the middle part, and then the northern one. So that makes a whole lot more sense now in looking at it. It's a magnitude 3 star, blue-white, A0 giant. It is also a classic navigation star, and an alignment star for both uh, Skywatcher and Celestron. And we already mentioned Ptolemy's cluster, M7. And if you start at uh, Chaos Australis uh, and go um, west from that star, you will find Ptolemy's cluster. So if you found Shaula and you found Chaos Australis, it's kind of like dead center between them. That's how you find it. Now, the last constellation that we're going to talk about is a very large but somewhat indistinct, I would say, constellation that a lot of people don't recognize. It's very big, but it doesn't have any really super bright stars in it. So that's Ophiuchus, the serpent bearer. And uh, so it's it's got quite a long history in mythology. And the, 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 the main star, Alpha Ophiuchi, the brightest star, is Rasselhag or Rasselhag. I'm not sure about that. Russell Ghoul? <laughs> Russell Ghoul? That's that's how I've heard it pronounced. What? As if, yeah. Okay, well, there's another one we're going to have to look up and uh, check out. I was look I was trying to look in the observer's handbook, but I can't read and talk at the same time. Uh, <laughs> I, the I head really of... have the handbook near, but I don't what? today, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, you should be doing the backup there, man. I should. I should. You should be next time, Dave. Yeah, I'm going okay. to grab my handbook. <laughs> yeah, all right. Okay, I'll carry on. It's a magnitude 2 double star, a white A5 giant. So a lot of these summer stars seem to be on the white end of the spectrum, eh? Which is interesting. 
Uh, again, a classic navigation star, an alignment star. And this is something that will be of interest to Chris, I know. Because if you can find Rasselhaig, which is below Hercules, um, I often see Rasselhaig, Rasselhaig and think it's part of Hercules. But in fact, it's the top of Ophiuchus. And if you can find Rasselhaig and go... Um, to the south, a couple of binocular fields away, you get this very interesting part of the sky that I've become interested in the last couple of summers. Well known to Chris is Taurus Poniatovii, which is a defunct constellation. And you had, um, I think Brian Ventrudo was on yep. episode number 234. I actually looked this up and he talked about he talked about this defunct constellation and he has actually, he wrote a last summer, he wrote a, a, like a feature sky and telescope article about all the cool things you can see in that part of the sky. And the last two times I've been to Kejimkujik, I have basically focused on that part of the sky, almost to the exclusion of the rest, just to try to tease out all the things that you can see there. So, so it's like a miniature Taurus. There's a nice little V of stars that uh, that pop out, and there's a whole bunch of uh, interesting things around there. I won't go into that, but uh, there is, uh, in the show notes, there is a link to uh, Brian's article, Cosmic Pursuits. Uh, uh, I've got the I've got the pronunciation here. Okay. Dave is right. Thank it you. Is Russell Hag. Yeah, and then I looked up what was the one we were talking about down in uh, Shaula. Yeah, and then uh, Shaula is Shola. Shola, okay. Yeah. Well, that's so, what one one for each of us. Eh? One for each. Shane is keeping score. I am. Yep. Yeah, will be battle to the death here. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So, if you're interested in that part of the sky, uh, go and have a look at Russell Hag. Russell Hag. Uh, and then also look up uh, the defunct constellation Taurus Ponia Tovii, which is in your list of wide field wonders. It is, yeah. That's the first I ever heard of it, but I didn't, I didn't know much about it until I heard Brian talk about it and then read his article because I don't get sky and telescope. I had to get somebody to uh, lend me theirs to see the article, but it's you online. So you should uh, subscribe to sky because one day. If we all don't subscribe to these magazines, there won't be magazines. Yeah, anymore. well, that's that's a topic for offline. But I'm, I'm <laughs> I have an issue with Sky and Telescope right at the uh, moment. So uh, <laughs> I would say let's just say it's it's more their um, shop on Sky, not so much the magazine itself, which I adore, but uh, the their their marketing arm. Uh, anyway, enough said. Okay. Uh, okay. So the last star we're going to talk about, and I hope we haven't gone over time with all this chitting and chatting. Sorry. Uh, no, we're good. Uh, Bernard's star, which is in the same area I was just talking about, is one of the one of the uh, targets in Brian's article. Now, Bernard's star is a variable star, V twenty five hundred Ophiuchi, mm. and it's a magnitude nine. So this is a dim star. You you need you will need a telescope to see this. For sure. And if you want to see the color, you need a, like a fairly big telescope to, to, to intensify the brightness so that your color receptors in your eye will see it in color. Uh, but it's a it's an orange-red M3.5 dwarf. So that might be it might be the reddest star we talked about today. because uh, uh, yeah, I think it is. Because Antares was an M1.5. So it's uh, so M is the last one in the series of spectral classes. So that is the reddest star. It's a very red star. I don't know if it's a carbon star, but it, maybe it should be. But now that star, in fact, and when I was talking about proper motion, a motion across the sky relative to the background, that star has the honor of having the highest proper motion. Uh, so uh, it moves so fast that in a human lifetime it will move a quarter of a degree which is half the width of the blue of the full moon that's how far that star moves in a human lifetime relative mm. to the background and and interestingly enough like if you look at the list of nearby stars in the handbook 
everybody should have a handbook, by the way. If you look at the list of nearby stars, uh, and I just figured this out the other day, but most of the nearby stars are not visible from Canada. And so Bernard's star has the distinction of the nearest star visible from Canada. Okay? So that's that's why it's a, it's a star you should know. And it's within t- t- Taurus uh, Poniatowski or Poniatowski, uh, depending on whether you're Polish or Italian, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, it's it's a very indistinct star, but it has a very interesting history, and it's a very special star because of this proper motion and its near nearness to us. So it's worth, even though it just looks like a little red dot in the sky, it's worth finding and saying, "Wow, I you know I saw I found that star here. It is." And I I actually uh, was playing around with this. I've been working with the uh, um, the robotic telescope at St. Mary's University here, which is free, by the way. If you want to get an account, you can get the you can get Ralph. Ralph is the nickname of the telescope. Ralph will take pictures for you on demand, not not when you want, but you can put it on a list. And while whilst you sleep, you can get it to take a picture of just about anything in the sky that you can see from Halifax. And I took in my in the earliest days of my experimentation with this telescope, which goes back about 2015, 16, somewhere in there. I took a picture of the star field with Bernard's star. And, you know, I, I figured out which one it was, but it wasn't anything to write home about. But I recently took another picture of Bernard's star, and I was able to pull both pictures out of the archives. Now, these were taken with... They're both taken with the St. Mary's telescope, but the telescopes are actually different because they got a new telescope uh, in between. But the fields of view are fairly similar. And I was able to pull up those pictures I took and kind of register them. And I could actually see the motion of Bernard's star between the two pictures I took over about seven years. Okay. So that was kind of a fun little project that I didn't really plan, but I just thought, hey, I already took a picture of that. Let's take another one. So I was able, with my own um, kind of primitive measurements and uh, tools, I was able to detect the proper motion of that star, which I think is probably the only time I've ever done anything like that. So that was kind of a fun little thing. And and it, it took very little effort in terms of taking the pictures. It was just kind of like figuring out, you know, which star was which and seeing which one had moved, which is always kind of a fun thing to do. When I was a kid, uh, and I only had binoculars, I was like 16. I went out and I, I was, I would hunt for asteroids and I, I would, I would look in the area that I thought it would be and I'd make a little map. And then I go out a couple of days later and go back, make another little map. And I could, I was able to figure out which one was the asteroid because the asteroid was the one that moved. And, and, and in fact, I would say I wrote that up in, um, in the Ottawa, RESE Ottawa Nova Notes, no, not Nova Notes, Astro Notes. And I wrote up a little article about, you know, detecting the motion of the asteroid, which the name escapes me. But I would say that was arguably my first scientific publication was my um, measurement of the motion of this asteroid against the background stars using binoculars. And I've got a copy of it somewhere. So... So that's that. Those are the stars you should know for winter or summer. Not winter yet, Dave. Not no, winter we yet. Did, we already <laughs> did those. Don't don't yeah. remind us. It's coming. There, there yeah. was a chill in the air this morning. This was the uh, coldest summer night we've had out here at this place yet. It was seven degrees when we woke up this morning. Wow. Yeah. Apparently, the rest of the country and world is in a heat wave, and we are. Well, I'm t- I'm taking my summer sleeping bag when I go to Kiji. Nice. Um, the last time I took it, I regretted it. That was only a month ago because yeah. it got cold overnight. And uh, I always sleep in my clothes anyway, because, you know, I'll go to my sleeping bag and take a nap and then, and then go out again. So I don't get undressed or anything. I just, but with my clothes on and my summer sleeping bag, I was still cold. So it chills down. Like it, it can get hot here in Nova Scotia during the day, but boy, it chills off pretty fast at night. Is that yeah. the same in the prairies? It, it cool can down? be. 
It, it can be both actually. <laughs> Some nights you can have a, a, you know, a 20 degree swing between daytime highs and nighttime lows. But uh, like, I think next weekend, it's supposed to be quite hot in grasslands where, uh, yeah. you know, we're probably going. And I think daytime high is 35 and nighttime low is going to be 22. <laughs> yeah. I've, well, I don't, I don't I've mind been, the cooler temperatures at night because it means there's no bugs, mm-hmm. you know? Right. I've been down there in the grasslands. I went down there once with Mike. And when we got there, it was positive 38, 38 degrees Celsius, which is very toasty. And we started observing in our t-shirts, put sweaters on, put coats on. And the, the temperature was just in a vertical line down. Eventually we got too cold to observe anymore. And we went to bed and when we woke up, it was about minus three or minus four. And there was heavy wow. sheets of ice on the tent where the dew had fallen on our tents and frozen to about uh, like maybe a, a few millimeters thickness. Like we, we got up in the morning, we were hitting the tents and it was just shattering ice. And that was uh, so that was about a 41 degree or 42 degree temperature difference. <laughs> right, right. The worst part about that is that like the body is just not designed for it. Like it, it's, no. it phys- your body physically hurts when it goes through that temperature swing. Um, mine does anyway. All right, Dave, anything else to add to this show on stars? You should know for summer. Um, just uh, everybody, if you have the chance uh, on a clear night and get away from the city lights, uh, I would say just go out, find a nice place to lie down with your binoculars and just enjoy all of the stars we've talked about in the Milky Way. And just, you know, I just like to just browse. And every so often I find something that's interesting and I look it up uh, in my uh, star charts. But it's fun just to kind of ramble around and just enjoy the views of the night sky and relatively good weather, you know, where you're not freezing yourself. And so just, if you have the chance, uh, have, if you have the chance, take the opportunity, the Perseid meteor shower next month is coming up and it's, it's in a, in a near a, a new moon time. Uh, so go out maybe, maybe if you can figure out that weekend, maybe is a good time to go out and yeah. look at the stars and maybe look for some meteors and should be around August 13th, which is yeah. probably about when this episode will come out, I think. Wow, cool. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate it. I, I always have fun doing these. I always learn by by preparing them. Uh, and uh, and uh, again, I just want to uh, remind people that uh, if you're interested in our Mi'kmaq Moons project, M-I-K-M-A-W, uh, these days, if you just Google it, you'll find us, you know, just in the and a browse a browser search engine and our book is available and by all accounts it's a a lovely book shane reviewed it uh, thank you for that shane and uh, uh it's got five stars on amazon um people are really enjoying it it's got good art i think the stories are fun and there's a lot of in- interesting astronomy facts in it and uh it would make a wonderful Christmas present if you're doing early Christmas shopping. Okay. <laughs> Do you have anything to add to this show, Shane? Yeah, one thing. We've talked a bit about star color as we do in these episodes. And I don't think I've ever mentioned this on any of our other podcasts, but if you're struggling to see some of the star color, um, a trick that a lot of double star observers use is to just go out of focus uh, with that star oh. and then seeing kind of that larger disc of light uh, helps you to sometimes anyways, it helps you to actually see the color of the star. And, uh, I've done that many times when I've, uh, been observing double stars and, you know, one is supposed to be blue or yellow or whatever. And sometimes it just looks white to me. And when I do this out of focus technique, it helps me to see the color a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, photographers can use that trick too. Some photographers put on fancy filters to blur, Mm -hmm the stars in a certain way, but you can get the same effect by just ever so slightly defocusing, get sharpest focus you can, and then just defocus a little. And then because the light is spread out on the sensor, it doesn't saturate so quickly. 
mm-hmm. and you get the sense of color. But I think that's the same effect here visually. I think you're you're spreading out the light and maybe getting more sensors involved in your eyeball. Uh, but yeah, that's a good trick. Yeah. Two two other things you can do to see color in stars is you can use lower power because sort of like a, a similar approach, you can concentrate that light that is there a little bit tighter, perhaps. And then the other thing is you can try observing under moderate light pollution or turning on your back porch light or observing under moonlight and the increased in uh, exterior illumination will cause maybe the photoreceptors in your eye to become activated. And then that will enable you to perhaps see color depending on the target. Yeah, I've heard that as well. Uh, Yeah. And in fact, going back to these constellation binoculars, which I'm so fond of, one of the things that sold me on the concept was the fact that even though the power is only two times, the the aperture is huge. And so all of that light's being funneled into your eyes. And I noticed right away that the star colors were much more evident, like Spica in Virgo. Uh, you know, I looked at it and I said, man, that's a blue star. Like it really is blue, you know, mm-hmm. and the, the Antares and the ones that have uh, distinct colors, uh, I was noticing colored stars with those. So I'm, I'm putting in another plug for those uh, ultra low power, ultra wide field binoculars. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us today, Dave. We really appreciate it. Uh, Dear listeners, please subscribe and do us a favor and share the show with other stargazers you know. Thanks for listening. And you can always send us your show ideas, observations, and questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Okay. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.